You know, I've often wondered what it is about surf music and classic monster movies that goes well together, but I've also discovered over the years that a lot of surf bands really cite spaghetti westerns as another influence to what they do. And this week is no exception. Right now you're listening to the song Shootout at Megara Ranch. It's from the band Inframen. It's from their album, The Outer Lariats. The Inframen have appeared here on the show in the past, and because of what we're talking about this week, I wanted something that had a little bit of a Western twang or flavor, maybe just a hint, a whiff. But we'll talk about what we're talking about here in a second, because I need to welcome you to episode 558 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema. It is Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, bringing you an episode in which we're going to talk about a movie that mixes two of my favorite things, monsters and westerns. Yes, I'm a fan of westerns. I'm usually more on the spaghetti western side of things, but you know what? Hollywood made some good westerns too. And Hollywood made a really cool monster movie western hybrid when they made 1959's Curse of the Undead. That's what we're talking about this week here on the show. And you know I don't do it by myself. I always have to have at least one person along for the ride. And this time around, my riding partner is Todd Brown from The Haunted Cinema. He actually recommended we talk about this movie, and it's been something I've been wanting to get to in a while, so here we go. Episode 558, Curse of the Undead. Got some universal action back into the mix here on Monster Kid Radio. Can never go wrong with a universal monster movie as far as I'm concerned. That's not all we've got this week, though. Of course, we've got Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. We are into Episode 2 of Ultra 7, 7, 7... Seven. That was awful, and I'll try to remember never to do that again. Anyway, the Beta Capsule Review, in which Mark Matsky is talking about every single episode of every single Ultraman series. We got through Ultra Q, we got through Ultraman, we are into Ultra 7, and I know I say this a lot. Episode 2 of Ultra 7, one of my favorites. It's got some real creepy stuff in it that you don't see in a lot of Ultraman episodes, at least not to this level. Mark's going to talk a little bit more about it. I don't want to steal his thunder, of course, but it's got some really cool stuff and throwbacks to previous Ultra stuff. That's all I want to say. Something else that I do want to say, though. I mentioned this on Facebook, and I'm going to mention it here, too, because I've learned over the years that the Monster Kid radio community is amazing. I oftentimes say Monster Kid Radio podcast listeners are the best listeners in the podcast world. And I mean that. All of you are awesome, whether we communicate on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever, or if we don't communicate at all. Monster Kid Radio listeners are the best. And a lot of you I consider family. I mean, we're one big Monster Kid family, right? So when I posted on Facebook the other day that I was a little out of sorts and I was going to try to get the podcast done by a particular day. Everybody was pretty understanding. And the reason I had to do that, the reason I wanted to kind of apologize in advance is uh, I just broke up with my girlfriend. Uh, It happened earlier this week. It kind of messed me up a little bit. Uh, I didn't sleep very well at all the night after it happened. And uh, yeah, so that's where I find myself this week. And I know you don't come to Monster Kid Radio to hear about what's going on in Derek's personal life, but my personal life involves monsters and it involves all of you. So I wanted to just say thank you for the encouraging words that I've received on Facebook 
about this, as well as some of the private messages that I've received as well. And no, it wasn't particularly a nasty breakup or anything like that. It isn't what I wanted, but yeah, I'll be okay. I'm sure it's just readjusting again to being single, which, you know, (laughs) maybe that's... I don't know. I'm not going to go down that path because, again, I know you didn't come to the podcast to hear about Derek's personal life. What you did come here to the podcast for is to hear about monster movies, a little bit of ultra action, and we're going to get to all of that right after this. in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves. Fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print, or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com, and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, 
the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. The Terrestrial Defense Force is confronted by the Green Terror in the second episode of Ultra 7. After six months of duty on Space Station V3, TDF astronaut Ishiguro returns home on the same day a large silver meteorite lands in his backyard. Dan Moraboshi, upon giving the astronaut a ride home, identifies the space rock as Tilsonite 808, a metal produced on planet YL. At home, Ishiguro opens a package containing a smaller piece of Tilsonite and promptly transforms into a green, wriggling, vaguely humanoid plant and attacks a drunken passerby. Dan and Ann Yuri rush the victim to headquarters where he, in turn, becomes a plant monster, leading the TDF brass to speculate that if left unchecked, the human population could be similarly converted in a matter of months. Fearing discovery, the alien YL, inhabiting the form of Ishiguro, suggests to his wife that they leave Tokyo for the countryside, setting up a battle between the Green Terror and Ultra 7 along a scenic mountain train route. The second episode of Ultra 7 wears the influence of Ultra Q on its sleeve to great effect. The narrator's commentary, the space invasion storyline, and the presence of Kenji Sahara as a TDF director are each reminiscent of Tsuburaya's trailblazing series. At the same time, it pushes concepts from Ultraman in a futuristic direction with technology such as the wristwatch-sized video phone. Most importantly, the viewer gains some tantalizing insight into the character of Dan Moriboshi, who evidently possesses something like X-ray vision and who has experience identifying metal from other planets. In episode one, we discovered that he can single-handedly prevent a car from moving, he keeps a capsule monster at the ready, and, well, he can become Ultra 7 through the use of the Ultra Eye. But questions abound, chief among them being, where did he come from? And why is he chosen to defend Earth by joining the Ultra Guard? It's a distinct departure from Ultraman, which led with a straightforward origin story and adds interest to an already likable hero. Assuming Dan Moriboshi is the hero of the series. He is the hero, right? For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Mansky reporting. In five fright-filled features, watch breathlessly as the coffin opens to release the terror duck. <laughs> it's only a gallon pose, the raven. Join Boris Karloff in the most gruesome day of the undead. 
Black Sabbath. And there are two more blood-chilling delights. Die, monster, die. And who knows? You may die. Laughing at the comedy of terrors. Five of Carlos. Creepy escapers. In nightmare colors. And you are invited. Dracula is back. In the first now Dracula movie, Dracula A.D. 1972. And with this new motion picture, an unrivaled event, horror ritual. You will participate with a Transylvanian vampire himself, swearing you in as an honorary member of the Count Dracula Society. He comes back from the living dead to extend you his personal invitation. Join me in the horror ritual. You heard it with your own ears from his blood-red lips. Get your honorary membership card when you see the new Dracula movie, Dracula A.D. 1972, and participate in the horror ritual. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name. Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else, we are going to the movies today. We are going to a cinema, the haunted cinema, to be precise. We've been invited by this week's guest. Todd Brown. How you doing, man? I am doing well. How about you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm doing really good. And I'm really excited to talk about this movie with you. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that I'd seen before, but it's been a long time. So it'll be, it'll be fun to dive back into it. I mean, chatted up with somebody who actually recommended we talk about it here on the show. Yeah, I, and I just rewatched it this past weekend, so it's all fresh. Right on. Yeah, I watched it on Monday. So it's it's still pretty fresh for me, too. Right on. But, you know, we're going to talk about Curse of the Undead. We're going to talk about the movie and everything else, but we got to talk about Todd Brown. We got to talk about the haunted cinema. What's going on? Man, we are a lot of things. So, beginning of the pandemic, it seems like the pandemic is in the news for everything, no matter what we talk about. I had uh, closed down the site for renovation, and uh, it took me a little while to get everything back going. Um, It's now up, completely as polished as a haunted cinema can get. Got new interviews going on. We don't have the galleries up yet. They'll be coming soon. Thinking about getting a podcast started, but for now, the new website, we've been back to the old schedule of posting an interview once a week. I'm posting up some of the older ones first. Tomorrow, got a real treat. A composer, Jackie Joy. She's an Australian composer who uh, did the music. She done music for a ton of stuff, but uh, recently, the new independent movie, Attack of the Cat People. And uh, she did, she made the music sound. If it like it was 1955 when she did this, it's, it, it's an amazing interview. She's an amazing person. So 
check that out tomorrow. Awesome. So this episode is going to go out this week. We're recording it on a Wednesday night. So nothing like waiting till the last minute, Derek. <laughs> Glad to see nothing's changed. So by the time this episode drops, this interview will be available. Uh, and Attack of the Cat People, it's an Australian independent production. I think Christopher R. Mim or Joshua Kennedy and right, right in the in the uh, ballpark of, of what this is. So it's a throwback, you know, independent horror film. It doesn't have anything to do with the Val Luton Cat People. Um, sure. So an animal. And, and for you, one thing you should be excited about, Jackie, the, the one film she studied the most to get the right sound was Creature from the Black Lagoon. How can you not? I mean, I love I love this woman already. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be available on Vimeo on demand on July 31st. January 31st. <laughs> it'll probably be there in july but it's definitely very oh, what what the heck okay yeah <laughs> january 31st see normally i cut out all the stuff that you know makes us sound like we not you know, you know what I, mean. I do i do i'm gonna leave that in <laughs> yes and you can check out there i did a spoiler free review of it on our site with the director sarah stevenson you can check that out if you want to do that before you see the movie but it's a fun watch if you're a monster kid You'll have a fun time. So we somehow went from your website to somebody else's movie, somebody who's not even on the show. What's the website address for The Haunted Cinema? It is thehauntedcinema.com. It's all one word, www.thehauntedcinema.com. I'll make sure there is a link in the show notes the way that we do whenever we have somebody on the show. So thehauntedcinema.com. Make sure people check that out Appreciate and it. see what Todd is up to. And is it just you or do you have any other writers? In no, there? I have Karen Joan Kahotek is writer. We love Karen. She's yep. great. Uh, Sarah Stevenson is writing. And I just got a, a guy. He just contacted me. He's written for Bloody Disgusting and a whole bunch of different things in, in Europe. Um, and he's also going to be contributing. I, forget, I apologize. I forget his name off the top of my head. People can look it up on their website. I am scrolling through it right now and I'm seeing interviews with... Marlena Midnight, who's one of my absolute favorite horror hosts. How cool is that? So we've got that. We've got Kevin Nicholson, by the way, is my other writer. Okay, yeah, we, we <laughs> Sorry, know Kevin. Kevin. We know Kevin. <laughs> Sorry, Kevin. I don't think he's actually he's not been on the show, but I know who he is. Uh, you've got some cool stuff on here about Star Wars. You got an interview with Craig Scott Lamb. Uh, you got some cool stuff on here. So mm-hmm. very very cool, fantastic. So I want to talk about the Curse of the Undead. We got to talk about this movie because you know it yes. combines a couple of my favorite things, but you know, we got to do something first. What could that be? We've got to play a round of the classic five. I can hear Steve singing it now. Steve and everybody else. It's now a chorus. <laughs> the classic five. The classic five is a game that we try to play on every episode of Monster Kid Radio. Traditionally, it is done with a deck of cards that you can pick up for yourself online over at Drive Through RPG. I'll find the link and mention it again at the end of this episode. But you can pick up this deck of cards and you'll see each card has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get monster kids talking about their favorite topic, classic monster movies. I still have not unpacked or unearthed <laughs> my deck of classic five cards. The unpacking continues. And I was chatting with Kevin Slick, friend of the show, the other day on Facebook, or maybe it was through an email, and he put it best that unpacking really never gets done. It's just a matter of moving the pile of stuff from one place to another. And hopefully, while you're moving it, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yes, yes. Or if you prioritize it, by the time you're ready to move again, you have boxes already ready to go. <laughs> there you go there you go i have taken so many boxes to recycling it's insane 
this, this, I have so much stuff and I'm just one dude in Wednesday and she didn't really pack a lot, you know, to the seats. Right, right. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, so that said, I have to rely on my spreadsheet. Okay. I, I have some questions here that we're going to pull up and go through with Todd. Todd, are you ready to play a round of the Classic Five? Yeah, and I have a confession to make about the Classic Five. Uh-oh. I, I don't know what has happened, but now when I watch a movie, I get to the end of it, and I'm like, man, if that was a Classic Five question, how would I answer whatever it would be? <laughs> so now I look nice. at all movies through the prism of the Classic Five. <laughs> that's awesome all right so we're gonna pull some actual questions however i've got one or two that i may have customized because of what we're talking about today like this one question number one what classic movie monster would you want to see in a western oh um well don't want to do anything from curse of the undead you know it could be it could and and it's kind of in that vein a mummy could be in a Western movie. I mean, he's been in the swamps of Louisiana, obviously Egypt. He's been in just about everywhere else. So uh, either a mummy or a werewolf, I think, would be the Wolfman would make a good classic monster in a Western. Wolfman would be awesome. You said mummy, though, and I think I've doc- I think people know at this point. I think people know at this point because I've talked about it on the show repeatedly. I've got a little bit of a mummy fetish. So do I. Mummies, Old West, that would be great. So would a werewolf. And I would love to see a kaiju film set in the Old West. I don't know how you'd do it. Well, Joshua Kennedy has pterodactyls, so that's kind of close. Pretty close. And you have Valley of Guanji, you know, you get some dinosaurs. But give me like a big old rubber-suited monster stomping its way through some town somewhere. There you go. I want to see That would be awesome. But mummies first. Yes. Just (laughs) because he's been everywhere else. Really, if you think about it. All right. So I know I said that I had some customized questions here. That was pretty much the only one. So we're just going (laughs) to randomly pull from some of these other questions here, like this one from the Monster Bash exclusive deck. What's your favorite Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde film? Um, You know, the Frederick March original, I think, is when I don't know Mm. if that's the original, but the Frederick March version has always been my favorite. The feel of it. I mean, it's got the the look. When I think it's kind of like the... When you think of Dracula, who do you think of? You know, you think of Bela Lugosi. I always think of the Aurora model kits and whatnot. I think that original version or the original sound version is probably my favorite. All right. Now, this one I did not write ahead of time. This is actually in the deck. Which movie do you prefer? Billy the Kid versus Dracula or Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter? For as bad as they are, they're kind of like Plan 9 from Outer Space. Um, (laughs) Probably the one I've seen most recently is Jesse James... Uh, Jesse James. So I'm going to go with that. He wanted to save a friend. She wanted a world of obedient killer zombies. Jesse James will kill us for what you are doing. Jesse James will be caught and hanged in Shelby. fiendish Frankenstein monster stalks the West's most fearless outlaw. Save your strength, Jesse James. You will need it. Although, honestly, I don't know if you could either go right or wrong with either of the two. So, yeah, we'll stick with Jesse James. Jesse James 
meets Frankenstein's daughter. You know, that's the one that's in the public domain, so that one gets played a lot. Exactly. Don't know how that happened, since they were kind of released as a double feature. And I, I don't know who decided they had to have Billy the Kid versus Dracula in their catalog, but something happened somewhere along the line. Does that fall under the uh, classic and sometimes not so classic? <laughs> you know what? I actually love both those movies. <laughs> I do. I, warm, I do. I, I really like Billy the Kid versus Dracula as creepy as that Dracula is. John Carradine is Dracula. I mean, he's perfect as Dracula anyway, but the way he's kind of leering at the young girl. Oh, yes. dude, what no, are you doing? That, that's true. Like I said, my thing is I've, I've just seen Jesse James sooner, so I'm just going to have yeah. it's more fresh in my mind. All right. How about this? Which movie do you prefer, The Monolith Monsters or Monster on the Campus? You know, my kids give me such grief. I love The Monolith Monsters. Chief, you got to believe me. You're going to think I'm blind. Rocks, right? Joe? Towers of rock crashing down and then growing up again? Yeah. Yeah. a part of the process is the absorption of silica, taking it right out of whatever it comes into contact with, like human beings. Just like Ben, their bodies are turned to stone. What was this amazing power that could turn people into stone, that could suddenly turn inanimate rocks, stones, monoliths, into growing, spreading, expanding monsters, threatening to engulf whole towns and cities, to bury all civilization under an immensity of weight beyond all calculation. The natural slope of the valley floor is bringing them right down here. And once they break through to the other side of the mountains, there'll be no stopping them ever. Look, all we're asking you to do is save her life. I can't cope with something I don't even understand. Ready! Hit it, now! You know, and I, I think I showed one of my sons, and he's like, the monster's giant rocks. I'm like, yes, of course. And they could destroy the world. Yeah. <laughs> was a, he teases me to this day. I'm like, I love that movie, and I'm unapologetic for it. <laughs> it's really good. And, and, you know, Monster on the Campus is fun, and, and I like that too. But, it, you know, it's a straight-up formulaic atomic 50s monster movie right you know insert monster here and damsel in distress the monolith monster there's nothing been been or since and probably never will be like the monolith monsters was that question three or four Mm, three uh let's see let's pop into uh, let's see that was from our universal deck so let's pop into our hammer deck here not counting the original what's your favorite hammer frankenstein film Frankenstein must be destroyed. I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. For God's sake, go away! Frankenstein must be destroyed. Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson. Frankenstein must be destroyed. This picture has been rated M. 
suggested for mature audiences. Wow, that was a quick response. Yeah, you know, I saw um, Veronica Carlson at Monster Bash uh, a few years ago, and she talked a lot about that and some of the troubling scenes that are in it. I think everybody knows what that is and, and how mm-hmm. Peter Cushing, you know, really uh, worked with her and, and got through the scene that the studio wanted. It made no sense in the movie. But, yeah, that probably that one just because of Veronica Carlson's kind of commentary and meeting her. All right, you know what? We're going to stick with Hammer. What was the most recent Hammer film that you've seen? Uh, Horror Dracula. Horror of Dracula. Dracula, the most terrifying lover the world has ever known. Who will be his bride tonight? Horror of Dracula. Dracula, dead and yet alive for 600 years. Dracula, the human vampire who lusts for human blood. See Horror of Dracula. The greatest shock story of them all now achieves new heights of motion picture suspense. See Horror of Dracula and watch the fiend who rises each night from his coffin bed to seek the rendezvous that alone can keep him alive. See Horror of Dracula and watch those who came to destroy a monster stay to become his victim. See Horror of Dracula, but don't dare see it alone. The chill of the tomb won't leave your blood for hours. Horror of Dracula, all new and in flaming Technicolor. I find myself revisiting Christopher Lee's Dracula movies more, almost more than anything else. It's such a presence. He's so cool in them. Uh, but yeah, that would be Horror Dracula would be the last one I saw. And by the way, the last movie I saw, I told you about how I kind of frame every movie now by the classic five. Uh-huh. If you would ask the question, what movie deserves a sequel? Mm-hmm. I just watched When Worlds Collide again. Ooh, you talk yes. about a movie that needs a sequel is When Worlds Collide. I agree. And isn't that one based on a novel? And wasn't there a follow-up novel to it? I don't know. I actually own the original no- uh, the original uh, novel. And um, it is different at the back. It, it goes in a little bit more about what they find. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, they opened it. You know, you, they got the, you see the alien ruins and, and all this stuff. It's like, I want to know more. But I think that's five, right? We are into the best part of the week because we just played around with the classic five. And now we're going to talk about a movie that I really like. I think it's underrated when you look at the universal canon. It feels a little out of place from when it came out, but it's still good. It's yeah. 1959's Curse of the Undead. What was he, this being half human, half what? Appearing out of the nightmare darkness, evil his face, evil his deeds. Do you really think I'd invent something as horrible as all this just to get rid of a ranch hand? I don't know what to think. I only know that I can't accept such a thing as a, a vampire. His victims, the young and the beautiful, as well as the bold and the strong. You were just lucky the other night when my man missed you. If that was me, you'd be pushing dirt. Don't reach for your gun. Will you get out of here? You call the time. Are they doomed, all who oppose him? Drake! Can nothing human stop him? I hit him. I know I hit him. If I can't do it now with your consent, I'll go into Banning and get a court order. But I'm going to open those coffins. See you dead first! Now get out! And a film that did a whole lot of—I mean, it's very tropey, but mm-hmm. the, the vampire is is really unique in his powers. I, I think it was great. It's a lot of fun. 
it's a movie that really keeps you guessing. The first time I watched it, I was like, so who's the vampire? You know, because yeah. it starts with you know, women with fang marks in their neck and a doctor is trying to figure out what's going on. And of course there's a religious person there and, oh no, you know, is it science? Can we fix it with medicine? No, we got to pray. I'm thinking, who's the vampire? Who's the vampire? Vampire doesn't really show up until we've already been introduced to a couple of villains. To really to the rest of the cast almost. Right. Which was a, a traditional Western almost until that point. Yeah, well, it's set up. I mean, it, literally, it's got just about all the Western tropes that you can imagine. You know, the rancher who's blocking off the stream and, and all that kind of, of pieces, parts. But it really works well. I mean, it builds tension and, and you know, to, to get that. And then you insert the vampire into the mix. I think it's a unique film. I I don't think there were any other, you know, we talked about Guanji and some of the other ones. I don't know how many other Western horror movies of that era, Billy the Kid and some of those. Um, I think this is the better one of all of them. Oh yeah. Compared to Billy the Kid versus Dracula and Jesse James and all that. Oh, for sure. For sure. And you know, some sources say this is pretty much the first vampire Western. I don't know if I would take my hat or, you know, stake my heart on that one. But it's pretty darn early. Supposedly the screenwriters, and I don't have their names in front of me, figures, were did it on a dare. Um, you know, Westerns were real popular. Horror was real popular, of course, at the time. And somebody's like, oh, boy, it'd be funny if you mix those two together. And they're like, I think we can do that. Edward Dean and his wife, Mildred Dean, or it might be pronounced Dane. I'm not really 100% sure. But uh, they co-wrote this film together, and Edward Dean directed the film. And yeah, I hadn't seen the bit about it being a dare, but I did find that they were like, yeah, nobody's really going to buy this. Let's just put something together and see what happens. I'm like, yeah, okay. Make that movie. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you're, okay. you're at the height of the monster craze. You've got the kids wearing their coonskin caps and have their Red Rider BB guns and whatever else. It's the perfect blend at that time. It hit all the buttons. When I look at it, the first time I saw it, I looked at it as it's a universal horror movie. I didn't think about the greater pop culture or media landscape. I was just thinking it's a universal monster movie and it doesn't fit because it's 1959 and most of universal horror movies at this point are more towards the atomic horror side of things, you know, and even though he's not atomic, you know, creature from the black lagoon kind of started to bridge the gap between the traditional Gothic monsters and the science monsters. And then we get into the, you know, tarantula, deadly mantis and things like that monster on the campus, you know, things like that. So this one almost feels like a throwback with some of the vampire stuff. Yeah. But when you bring it up, Universal is basically giving it to Hammer at that point. Hammer was picking up on the gothic, more traditional mm -hmm. vampire yeah. and, and whatnot. But yeah, in pop culture, I mean, this was this was the big time. You know, you, you get that trope of the kids with the cap guns for Christmas and the, the cowboy hat or the coonskin cap. And of course, like I said, the, everybody knows the monster craze was full, full mania at that time. Yeah. And it's really well done, too. I mean, it's, it's for all the we did it on a dare or nobody will buy this. It still feels very well constructed with one conceit. I do have issue. I do take issue with one element that's a little like, really? And I'll talk about that here. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested. But for the most part, it's pretty well constructed. And it's more than just let's throw a vampire into the town and see what happens. There's some really cool interactions between all the characters when the vampire's not on screen. Yes. Yes. You throw the vampire in and then it becomes even more interesting. And I was captivated by it when I sat down to watch it Monday night. The vampire, like you said, he's not just thrown in for, we need to insert vampire. He he really was a wild card in the action. He built 
more tension than the tension that was already there. He just added to it. And then he flipped sides too. You know, he started out with Buffer and, and his guys and he was going to do whatever. And then he flipped to, to Dolores' side, the, the ranch owner. And, and again, wherever he went, you know, he, he built chaos. You say he brought tension to all the scenes, yet he pretty much tells everybody what he's going to do as soon as he shows up in town. I'm a hired killer. You want to kill somebody, somebody dead? hundred bucks? I'm your guy. Yeah. He, he's right on, you know, just boom, right in the open. Doesn't care who's just, ooh. But still, you can't help but feel kind of chilled. And I think part of it is the performance as well. Yes. Uh, Michael Pate, who I think is Pate. Is that, do you know anything about the guy? Yeah. Weirdly enough, he, he had done, um, he was a Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea and Time Tunnel. A ton of Westerns, as you might expect. I don't know if he was Australian, but apparently he went back to Australia and did some stuff down there. The last film that I'd seen that was genre-related, he was in The Howling 3. <laughs> I was going to mention that. He was one, which makes sense with the Australian side of the thing. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, no. So he, he's he got a little bit of genre cred. Big Westerns. He did a ton of Westerns. And he looks like a guy who would do a ton of Westerns. He looks like a guy who would wear the black hat in a ton of Westerns. He really looks like a villain. You know, everybody always teases about the white hat and the black hat. This bad guy did wear all black. Yeah. <laughs> there was yeah. no doubt who the bad guy was. There are gunfights in this. And the gunfights are handled so well, too. And, oh, man. You can't kill a vampire with a bullet. No. You just can't. I mean, it's not one of their weaknesses. You should know better. But these people don't know that he's a vampire. So when they engage in a duel, they're doomed. The one poor guy, he shoots him and uh, the boss fires him because he's like, you were only like five feet from him. I swear I hit him. (laughs) Get out of here. You can't shoot. I was like, wow, that's kind of (laughs) rough. Well, and as an audience, we know why. We know exactly what happens. Like, yeah, well, he did hit him, but he's a vampire, so it doesn't matter, you know, (laughs) which is something that I love uh, in the movie Son of Dracula, Mm -hmm. where somebody comes in and shoots the Lon Chaney vampire. And kills the girl behind him? Yeah, and it just passes through him and gets the girl behind him. It's like, oh, wow, that's a clever way to do it. And they do it, again, in a clever way in this film, too, the way it was presented. I really liked it. And I did like in the one where he got shot, didn't die, of course, but his vest had the hole in it. And Dolores like, what happened? He pulled out his cigar tin and said, oh, this this saved my life. You know, but I did like how, because sometimes you see people get shot in the old Westerns or whatnot. And other than them grabbing, clutching their heart and falling down, you know, there's really no evidence. Obviously, they didn't have blood and, and gore or anything like that. Back right. in those days. There's no evidence, but he had the bullet hole right, you know, right there over his heart, which he explained away. Good stuff. I was impressed by that, too, because like you said, normally it's somebody just grabs their chest and they bend over and that's it. You don't see anything. And that's always been kind of a thing that I've had to explain away, I guess, when I'm trying to introduce somebody to these movies. Yeah. You might see some blood, you know, in the 30s horror movies. But once you get into like the 40s and 50s, you don't see it nearly as much. And especially in the Westerns, which. Right. People fall off or, like I said, clutch their chest and, and, and drop dead or whatever. Uh, my favorite is when they clutch their chest and then they kind of do a pirouette and they spin around. Yes. And then they fall back. That's that's my favorite. That's my favorite move. Yes. That, <laughs> and that's a classic. That's a that's a very tried and true Western die move. <laughs> I don't think anybody did that in this one now that I think about it. Uh, Buffer had a pretty good the, – the, the main bad rancher guy had a pretty good death, but um, he didn't spin around. I, I did like Buffer, who was uh, played by Bruce Gordon. Phenomenal. 
he 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 stole a little bit of this every scene he was in he kind of stole but i liked uh when he was with his crew anytime he was with his crew in the bar you looked at those guys and you knew like they were going to walk off this this set go to the cafeteria in their clothes and then go back and jump on another set and and you know they were just like we need a western guys call these guys (laughs) (laughs) they they would look like western extras (laughs) they really did well bruce gordon was perfect Yes. As Buffer. He, a Buffer being the rancher that's trying to make a play for the other ranch land by damming up the water. He's always got an excuse. He's like, yeah. oh, come on. You know, I wouldn't do that. This is why I did it. And you're like, he's always got an excuse. He's always got, you know, a reason for what he's doing. But we all know full well. <laughs> that's right. And, and that's why I said, if you took the vampire out, it's still a pretty good Western. It really you know is. I mean? <laughs> so it didn't depend on the vampire. The vampire just added. It's like the cherry on the top. It just yeah, added to it. The, the um, vampire cherry. From it. Now, the first time I saw this, when we first see the vampire, mm-hmm. he's introduced like in the shadows watching the doctor ride off, played by John Hoyt, who is the original doctor from the first pilot of Star Trek. I love John Hoyt. I think he's great. Uh, I've seen him in a few other things too, but of course I'm always going to think Star Trek when I see him. But anyway, he's riding off in his little horse and buggy and you see the vampire in the, in the shadows kind of staring at him. And the first time I saw this, I thought he's working for buffer. Right. And I mean, right off the bat, you get a twist because no, he's working for himself. He has nothing to do with buffer and company. That's right. So, you know, you get twist right off the bat. So did you get a chance to look at the um, commentary at all? No, I did not. Did you? I, I listened to a little bit of it. He was talking about, I guess when they, in the script, uh, he had the script for it. They wanted to have like the horse and the and the vampire like in slow motion and the horse is, is rising up and, and in slow motion and, and, you know, whatever, and kind of giving it that phantom look. You didn't get that, but uh, they did it only one time, I guess, in the show. They did it one time, but there was a whole bunch of times where they wanted to film it to make the horse and the rider look ghostly or, or, or you know, uh, scary or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. I, I think that would have been cool to see if they would have done that. It would have been neat. Do you think that the doctor was dead when he was looking at him, or do you think he met him around the curve of the bed? That was another question that Tom Weaver was asking that, you know, he was asking, you, you know, the speculation huh. is, was he already dead? Or did he get him around the corner? Oh, I don't know. Pretty cool. I like to think that he had already killed him and just watched the horse, you know, watched the wagon go, or the, the buggy going back. Yeah. Um, but pretty neat. Pretty neat huh. to think about. What did you think about the the, the the lore of the vampire in this movie? Because it was fairly unique, I thought. You know, this comes along in a time where we haven't been, I don't know. Uh, for lack of a better term, oversaturated with Dracula films, right? So in terms of how vampires work, a lot of movies kind of are just making it up as they go from that era. Son of Dracula, it's kind of done a little differently. Dracula's daughter is kind of implied a little bit differently. There are other movies, The Vampire. How did The Vampire come about? Well, it was this way and that way. I really liked it. I thought it was a unique way to introduce this cursed individual, somebody who had done a sin uh, along the lines of something biblical. Yes. And he's yeah. now cursed. And yeah. I really liked that idea too. You could see him and he could be in daylight. It, it seemed like, mm-hmm. you know it what did. I mean? It, it did seem um, like. 
but the, that was the only flaw I thought. Now he did mention that it hurt his eyes to be out in the sun. He had, he was telling Dolores he has an eye problem, but he sees fine at night. Um, that was the only weakness I thought when they were kind of giving him all those powers, it's like, well, why would he need to go back to his coffin? Because the coffin without giving too much away or anything away plays a big, a big piece of the plot hole of, you know, is he in the coffin? Is he not in the coffin kind of thing? But mm-hmm. I thought that was just because like I said, they show him out in the sun. very first time you see him. He basically comes walking off a, a street. Now, the way they shot that with the filters and everything, it's hard to say if they were shooting for a dusk look, you know, or if it was supposed to be high noon. I don't know. One time, a couple times when he when he was out, it looked like it was more high noon, like when he was going after the preacher and, and got stopped. And, of course, at the very end. Interesting. I, I Like I said, I just I like when they play around with the mythology of vampires in movies. You know, Hammer, it seemed like every vampire Every Dracula movie, they would add a piece. You know, he can't cross <laughs> running water, and then he's killed. <laughs> you know, all these little you can pour blood in the cat, and he comes back. I the like Hawthorne the bush, the Hawthorne. What? What? Where'd that come from? The now? Hawthorne bush. Yes, exactly. Okay, I like that. I like where they're just. We're just. We're not taking away. We're just going to add. We're going to add. And I like how Kirsty Undead's like. Look, this is our vampire. We're going to do what we want to do with it. <laughs> exactly. Now, this kind of maybe the best place for me to segue into the one thing that I was thought was a little too much. Mm-hmm. I like that the preacher has this little pin with a cross on it and it reflects some light onto the vampire's face and he kind of looks away. That's cool. Where'd you get that preacher, man? Well, it was a gift to me and it was made from a piece of wood from the original crucifixion. Yeah. No, what? Yeah. Come on. How did you get that? I thought the, <laughs> I thought the exact same thing. Some, the, some podunk town preacher, you know, you'd think that's like the Pope would have that. Right. Like, what are you doing with this relic, dude? Come on. And, you know, honestly, I don't even know if that was even needed to be said. I mean, no, it wasn't because you could have said, oh, I've got this cross pin and made it to the bullet or whatever. And I've been fine. Right. Yeah. It didn't need to be. It was a piece of wood from the original cross. Like, what? No. And here I am complaining about a movie in which there's a vampire running around killing people <laughs> about right. how unrealistic this part is. <laughs> <laughs> that and, and the other thing about the preacher is I couldn't nail down what faith he was, right? You know, because he's he's wanting to date Dolores, so he can't be a, a Catholic priest, but he has crucifixes, and they talk a lot about, about that stuff. <laughs> it's like, we're just going to put him in the category of a Christian pastor. I think, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Now, he's played by Eric Fleming, and boy, here's another guy that looks like he was made for Westerns, doesn't he? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I know absolutely. he did but some. He did, a lot of, he did a lot of genre stuff. Mm-hmm. But he just did The Queen from Outer Space right before this. Conquest of Space a while back. Fright? Yes. <laughs> Fright, yeah. I don't know if you read anything more about him. He died very young. He was like 41. I read a little bit about his background because I, I became captivated by this guy, mm-hmm. not just because he looks like he was made for Westerns, but his voice was amazing. Oh, yeah. He was a leading man. I mean, oh, he was yeah. made to be a leading man. Yeah, he was. They were filming some movie called The High Jungle, and it, they actually went on location, which I thought was kind of weird because, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Universal would just went out to the back lot, and, and that's where the Black Lagoon is. But they were on location, and he was in a kayak and or a canoe, a dugout canoe got off of it somehow or fell off of it and drowned. They never body. I don't know if they ever found his body. Oh no. Yeah. He drifted 41 years old in the filming of film and he was killed on film on location. That's 
awful. I mean, and he had a pretty rough time of it too. If you look into his background, he was born with a club foot. He had an extremely abusive father. He tried to kill his own dad when he was eight years old. Uh, he ran away from home, ended up getting beat up real bad by a bunch of gangsters, had to go to the hospital to get that fixed. Uh, just, he had a really rough time of it. And yeah, to sir, know that, served in yeah. World War II uh, in the Seabees. He was a, a carpenter in the Seabees. Man. I'll tell you, as far as leading man or whatever you would think is cast as a leading man, he he's exactly what you would think. You know, the, mm-hmm. the granite jaw and the, you know, the perfect hair and the whole nine yards. It was kind of cool that they made him the preacher, right? Because he looked like a guy who could handle himself. You know, sometimes you think preachers, you think, you know, they're the, the older, you know, usually, and especially in Westerns and stuff, they're the older gentleman, you know, the little house in the prairie kind of preacher. But he, he looked like, hey, let, you know, let's throw down. And, and when he challenged the vampire, it's like, he can do this. Yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more about the background of that preacher. Like, was he a gunfighter before he found the faith? You know, what was the deal there? There you go. You know? that, speaking of speaking of prequel, movies that need a prequel. Hey, there you go. <laughs> I'd love to see that. And we technically get some of that here. But before we get to that, I do want to comment. He's got this super good looking look, you know, bleeding mad type, which is probably by design because he had to have plastic surgery to fix his face after he dropped a 200 pound weight on it. Really? Yeah. So he was in a bet. Uh, somebody bet him to lift a 200 pound weight and uh, broke his forehead, nose, and jaw. <laughs> Gee whiz. And you think 50s plastic surgery, apparently uh, we haven't come a long way because that was perfect work. Right. <laughs> I would yeah. not have known that at all. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you talk about him being maybe being a gunfighter before. He did have. You know, he had a pistol. He was ready to go. He had a gun belt the whole nine yards. They didn't make a big deal of it, but he had one. And he wore it well. It -hmm. wasn't something, it didn't look like somebody who didn't know what he was doing. It looked like, it looked natural to him. And he outdrew the gunfighter. Mm -hmm. So you're right. There, there, There is a backstory to that character. It really is. And there's a backstory to the vampire as well. And I like that you know may i don't know if it's a throwback to dracula where we're getting some of the story told through excerpts of letters and journals you know this epistolary style or what but there is a moment where the preacher man is going through and finds all this paperwork in this map and this journal and we learn the true background of drake yes really drago which yes you know, another bit of clever writing there, too. I mean, I really feel like there is some thought put into this, even if they just wrote it as a lark, you know? They kind of got a little lazy with the last name. The the Drago Robles and Drake Roby. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think anybody was going to know, you know, at that time, like, oh, there was, weren't there a Robles group that lived around here? Right. I'll tell you, the one, the, the other place where he shines as the vampire mm-hmm. is his relationship. When we haven't talked about her yet. Uh, Kathleen Crowley, who played Dolores, how he he really manipulated her almost every time he talked to her. Yeah. And I like that it wasn't the, you know, vampires lost love kind of trope that we get with sometimes the vampire movies. It was, I mean, he was interested in her, but he was playing her, you know, going to be her, her hired gun and then don't worry about it and and all the different things. And of course, the preacher was probably more out of jealousy than, than real suspicion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you're right. Off the land, which I thought was interesting too. The the preacher wasn't, you know, the pure innocent soul. Uh, and I think it goes back to his, you know, was he a gunfighter beforehand? But uh, no, I really like the interaction between 
Drake and Dolores. Again, the way he manipulated her. And, and you could see her even towards the end of it being exhausted almost by the back and forth and all the pulling. You know, of course, he's at the same time draining her, you know, bits by bit. Thought it was great. I thought th- those interactions were, were really interesting uh, to see. Yeah. And you mentioned him draining her. The way that was shot felt so uncomfortable. Now, we don't see anything. It's 1959. It's not sexy, whatever, but it felt so wrong. Like we were watching somebody be violated almost. Yeah, it was violated. Exactly oh, violated. It, it was rough, man. And I think part of it was Michael Pate's, you know, body language, the way he was kind of moving, the way it was shot, the, the music. I don't know. There was something there. And every time we saw it, I was creeped out. You know, what sold it was he never really came off like he was he was courting her if you not me at all you know like he was going to try to make her i mean i think that was the ultimate goal eventually but he she was just more of a a player a pawn for him there was no like i said sometimes you see you know dracula looking for his lost love or or they see the the girl that they have to have she was just there in the way and in in, in for a piece of what he wanted which was his family's land back i think um a lot to it but she could have been anybody. And, and and he just decided, you know what? So yes, I think violation is a great, there was no, there was no um, affection for her. I don't think I never got that from him at all, that he had any affection for her. I didn't either. She was just a piece of, uh, you know, a piece to move around and try to get what he wants. And I like that about this movie too, is that it's not the traditional vampires in love with the woman. We got to, you know, we gotta blah, 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 blah. No, none of that. It was just flat out totally different. This movie is really refreshing for me. I I had such a good time revisiting it. That made Drake more malevolent as a vampire, as a monster. He he was more believable as a monster. Even his backstory, he was a everything he did before he became a vampire was was bad. You know what I mean? He 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 wasn't you know the tragic hero or the the you know the whatever. I'm thinking of Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, Dracula had that tragic, how he became a vampire. No, he was just a bad guy all along <laughs> from, yeah. from start to finish. <laughs> yeah, no, he was he was jealous. He was murderous. He was uh, just a spiteful dude and got what he deserved, I guess. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he took a lot of people down with him along his very long life, but still. And, and the ending was great because... You know, he was, he's so self-assured, right? You know, he's talking to the preacher and the preacher is his, his Moriarty, I guess, if you want to say, or, or his, his arch enemy. And, and, you know, he's like, oh, you want to get into a gunfight with me? Great. Let's do this. You know, I'm going <laughs> to, so cocky and self-assured as the monster. He knows exactly how it's going to play out and doesn't. <laughs> well, we've seen him kill a couple of people already, you know, mm-hmm. in gunfights or whatever. And. You know, we have no reason to believe that he would believe that he's going to lose. Right. I guess when you're fighting somebody who's firing a gun with a bullet made out of a pin that was made out of a piece of the original crop. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, if you're going to kill a vampire, that is definitely one way to do it. I mean, I believe (laughs) that everybody would say that that would be the that would do it. (laughs) If you're going to kill a vampire. (laughs) You you know, I, I did. I did feel a little bad for Buffer, the ranch guy. Really? Just from the fact that you could bait him into a gunfight, it's kind of like uh, uh, Back to the Future, you know, when they call Marty McFly chicken. 
<laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Good point. Good point. The young brother did it. You know, oh, you're just yellow and, and got him in a gunfight. Then Drake did the same thing. Kind of not, not, you know, egged him into it and let him pull the tr- pull the gun first. That way Drake could say, hey, man, I was just defending myself. You know, he, he did it. <laughs> and they do that a couple of times in front of the town sheriff. Yeah, exactly. I, old Buffer needed a little anger management, I think, is, is what he really needed. He would have lived longer. <laughs> right. And the, the gunfight's happening in front of the sheriff, too. And it's like, you saw it. He drew on me first. You saw it. He egged me on. I was just defending myself. And the sheriff was just totally ineffectual. <laughs> I liked the sheriff, though. The I did, too. And I liked his interaction with Buffer uh, more than anything else. Like, you know, when he came in and kicked the guy out of the chair and basically, let's play some cards. I'm not here doing anything. I have someone here to play some cards. You know, I thought he was a good, good sheriff as far as a good depiction of a of a tough hard-nosed sheriff. Yeah, he was great. Ineffective, but he was great. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like I said, people are fans of Westerns. I think they'll find everything they want in this movie. If they're a fan of classic monsters, they're going to find what they want in this movie. And then you blend them up together. Man, it is is gold. It's gold stuff. It really is. It is a great universal horror movie. It's a great universal monster flick. Uh, it feels like that. It's got that kind of pseudo-gothic feeling in some spots. Some of it feels like it's shot on a set, but so did a lot of Universal Monster movies, so it's at home there. You know, you've got character actors. You've got actors really kind of just playing these tropes. You've got music by Irving Gertz, who did a ton of classic monster movies, not just for Universal, but like he did The Alligator People and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, his music appears. And it's just, all in all, a great flick. Why, why do you think this is underseen? Because I really do believe it. It's it's you don't really hear people talk about it much. You know, it's got a great Blu-ray release, very inexpensive from Kino. I think it's fifteen bucks uh, on Amazon. Why why do you think that this uh, is it? Because it was fifty nine, and we're starting to move out of this stuff. Maybe I, that might be a big part of it. I mean, I wonder if they would have had a, uh, a Julie Adams, you know, in the role, or a Lon Chaney Jr. or somebody. You know, maybe that because uh, there's no star, real, no true star power in this movie at all. This movie really is a solid, a solid genre flick that did a lot of new and cool things, and nobody's seen it. I've heard complaints that it's too slow or it's too campy or stereotypical Western, but I think those are parts of its charm. Yeah. So I, I don't know why people haven't seen this more. Maybe it's the Western. I know there's people who, you know, 50s Westerns can have a tendency to be the same story kind of over and over and over again. Just, you know, insert Indians here or bad guys there or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It could be that. I, I don't know. I think for Monster Kids, this really delivers for Monster Kids. This has got everything you'd want. I don't know that it's slow. I think the pace is fairly good. It's not very long. Yeah, it I gets agree. in and out pretty quick and it tells its story. It's very consistent in its story. They weren't top build actors and actresses, but I, I didn't find any character. I didn't believe, you know what I mean? I, I thought they all did a great job with their characters. Yeah, I agree. Nobody stood out for me uh, in a negative way. Of course, there were some standouts on a positive, like Michael Pay, like Eric Fleming, right? but nobody felt like they didn't belong. I mean, the brother, he was a little weak, but he wasn't in it that long. In fact, I liked the doctor a lot, and I was really almost surprised how fast he was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, it's one of those, you don't know, <laughs> who's 
right. who's on the shortlist. You know, you don't know. That's right. Yeah, if you're a fan of that actor, um, you'll be sad because he doesn't make it very long. Well, and even when Michael Pate shows up and he's like, hey, I'm the hired killer and I'm going to kill you, Buffer. Mm-hmm. He doesn't kill him right away. I mean, he could have killed him right away, but he doesn't kill him right away. So again, it just, it plays with expectations in a way that I found, again, I'm going to use that word refreshing. I think the refreshing thing too, and this is where I I just, I hope that people listen to this who haven't seen it, really give it a try. You really have nothing to lose. I think you're going to be really happy is sometimes in a, in a horror film from those eras, the slowness can come with the buildup, right? You don't get to the monster until the back third or, you know, whatever. And so you've got all the exposition to get there. This movie, kind of a little bit of the same, but you've got the Western story taking place. So you're entertained by that or you're in, you know, that part's going on. Then you get to the monster part and that part's going on. So there's never a part where the story is just dragging on or building up. There's two stories happening at the very same time. Yeah. So there's something for everybody. I know you want some more vampire, but sit with the, the Western part for a minute because it's pretty interesting too. <laughs> Agreed. No, it, it totally makes sense. And you're right. The Western part of this it could have been a Western. If Drake would have just turned out to be a gunfighter and this just, you know, never, never had the, the, you know, the beginning, which I thought was really creepy as they're riding down the, uh, the, the street and all the wreaths on the doors. Cause all the girls are, all the young girls are, are dying. If they would have just cut that out and just said, he's just going to be some bad cowboy dude or, or bad gunfighter. It would have been a fine, fine movie on its own. Sure. But the fact that they did what they did and they added that creepiness and they added that tension. And, and again, perfect character to play that vampire perfect it's perfect casting i agree uh i think there's a lot going for this film i know we spoiled a big chunk of it but there's still a lot to discover i highly recommend it it sounds like todd does too and i don't know about spoilers if you're watching a 50s western there are certain things you expect like a gunfight Right. There, there are certain things that if you don't get that in the 50s Western, you want your money back, right? Um, right. <laughs> for some vampire films, there's there's certain things that you expect to have happen. And I think they did all of those things. You know, you're going to get all that stuff. The horror twist made it refreshing and different than what you've seen before. And I'm going to let Todd have the last word on that because I can't say it any better. I can't say it any better. A uh, great film and a great film to chat about on a Wednesday night after we both got off work and we're just kind of hanging out. What we do, we talk about monster movies. That's, That's right. What we do. That's right. And it's always a good time. And if you want to keep the conversation kind of sort of going and hear more about what Todd's up to, again, thehauntedcinema.com. Yep. And if, if anybody, you know, you want to uh, try your hand at writing a review or even an interview, just shoot me up. I'm on Facebook. Um, you can email me at Todd at the haunted cinema.com. Love to have you. I'd love to tell you I pay really good, but I can't pay anything because I don't make any money off the site. So it'd just be, you get the credit though. And I'll put your name in the lights. Like in said, lights. Something like that. Give me a shout and uh, I'd love to have you contribute. You'll put the, your name in lights, huh? They're, they're dim lights and a couple of the bulbs are burned out, but they're there. <laughs> to the outer universe a reality. Satellite space stations in operation for landing and refueling. Apparently we have some deadly neighbors now to space. Captain, it's heading toward us. And now the story of the fantastic adventure that befalls mankind's most daring crew of space explorers. What a sound. 
in the hum of an insect. Is this a dead planet? Landing on an unknown planet, they are captured by long-limbed beauties. When they say, take me to your leader, and they take them to a creature like this, you know they're on planet Venus. And the queen of outer space is Jaja Gabor. The most talked about woman in the world knows what she wants on Venus, too. Then we're the only men on the whole planet? Wow. You'll see the revolt that brings the planet under the domination of strangely masked females who hate and fear the male animal. Let me kill her now. You're not only a queen, you're a woman too. Let me see your face. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. <coughs> the war of the sexes, when voluptuous Venusians give battle to spacemen from Earth. The destructive might of incredible space rays that stop man from returning to Earth. Prepare for maximum acceleration. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. When you hear the monsters in the machine, you know we're near the end of the show. If you have any feedback that you'd like to share with the show regarding this episode or the previous 557, feel free to send it in or call it in. The Monsters in the Machines information is also on our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything we've got going on. Twitter, Discord, Patreon, the Facebook group, and the new and improved or restored or updated Facebook page. It's back. Well, kind of. I had to make a new one. Because I could not restore the old one because it doesn't matter. Mark Zuckerberg controls too much. Anyway, <laughs> so we have a Facebook page. We're back there as well. If you're a Facebook user, please consider liking the page and joining the group. We also have a Star Trek on Monster Kid Radio Facebook group you can join too. And then, of course, here, if you're a Twitter user, you can follow us there and all of that. I am considering bringing back the Monster Kid Radio Instagram page. I have a personal Instagram page. Wednesday has one, but... I don't have one for MKR that I've been updating. I mean, I know there's one out there, but I haven't done really much with it. Are you an Instagram user? I'd love to know. I mean, I'd love to get involved in social media with everybody. But if there's not many people on Instagram, is it really worth it? Anyway, drop me a line. Let me know. Maybe leave a comment. Wherever it is you consume Monster Kid Radio. Speaking of consuming things, if you want to consume anything that you've heard about here on the show and you want to consume it courtesy of Amazon, please consider using one of the Amazon affiliate links over on the website as well. Real easy to find. It's right there in the show notes. Or just look for the Amazon graphic. It's got the silhouette of Frankenstein with the big Amazon A on it. That will take you straight to Amazon, and you just search for whatever you want and buy it, and we get a couple of pennies. And everything, of course, helps to keep the lights on here at Monster Kid Radio. And I mean that literally now. I know I've said it in the past, but it's literal 
things are about to start kicking into high gear in terms of me needing to bring in some more funds just for whatever. You know what? Again, you're not here for that. You're here for Monster Movie Talk. What's coming up next week on the podcast? Speaking of Monster Movie Talk, well, um, I have no idea. I am not that far ahead. I haven't booked anything. I don't have anything in the bank that I can edit together quickly and get out to everybody. So I don't know what's coming up. I do know there will be an episode. There will be an episode of some sort. I just have to scramble and come up with something. And I'll make sure that I announce it through the various media channels, social media channels that we have once we figure out what's coming out next week. What I can tell you is that I know on Saturday we're doing a Lon Chaney Senior Day in the Monster Kid Movie Club, which is our Twitch channel over at twitch.tv slash Radio from 11 a.m. to at least 6-ish p.m. Pacific Time at twitch.tv slash Radio. We're going to be showing movies. We got a pre-show from Scott Morris. It's fun. I've already checked out this week's. I've watched it. Got a cool documentary. Just come come and watch it. Just come and watch it. It's awesome. So we've got that coming up. And then we've got Lon Chaney movies all day. Things like Ace of Hearts, He Who Gets Slapped. And of course, we got to show The Phantom of the Opera. I have to. We're monster kids. We're talking Lon Chaney Sr. We got to talk about The Phantom. So yeah, we'll be showing nothing but Lon Chaney Sr. films. So make sure you check in for that. It's free to watch. There's a chat. You can communicate with your fellow monster kids. A lot of listeners are there. It's just a good time. And then on Tuesday, we do something similar. Around 3.30 in the afternoon, we kick this one off and we show nothing but cliffhangers. And next week, we're going to be showing the second half of The Phantom Empire and Jack Armstrong. Again, there's a chat and there's a lot of fun. Yeah, I really don't know what's happening next week. If you have any ideas, drop me a line. In the meantime, though, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Shootout at Magara Ranch. That is copyright The Inframen. 2017. You can pick it up on their album, The Outer Lariats, and you can pick that up online at inframen.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name's Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao, and uh, I'm going to ride off into the sunset now. Mm-hmm.